All right, welcome back to episode number 95 of the Backlash Podcast. I honestly cannot believe that we made it 95 episodes. And what what's more important is I don't believe we've ever missed a week since we started. I think we've been consistent where we've put out an episode every single Wednesday morning at 5 a.m., regardless of the circumstances. And the circumstances have been you know, tough sometimes. I think that... Uh, Brad and Carrie have had a few issues. I've had a few issues, and we've still managed to put out episodes. And I'm I'm very thankful that we've been able to be as consistent as we have been. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. And if you want to check out my company, you can check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. For anybody that cares, we've gotten a ton of product in recently. We've gotten it from Chaos Tackle, H2O Tackle. We're going to be restocked on detonators hopefully soon. I hope Brad's got an update for me on that. If you're looking for the IC9 from Musky Frenzy, the new Lungeon Lures, Chubby, Smoker Tackle, Musky Armor, Spanky Baits, and hopefully some new stuff from Smitty Lures, we have it all. I know Brad doesn't like I talked about a bunch of different bucktail companies, but for the sake of Team Rhino Outdoors, we carry it all. Anyways, my uh, co-host today is Brad Hoppy with Musky Mayhem Tackle. If you want to check out Musky Mayhem Tackle, you can visit their website, muskymayhemtackle.com. And I know Brad will give you will give you the props, the detonator. That thing's been smoking hot off the Team Rhino Outdoors website. So what's the what's the update? You think I'm going to be getting some detonators pretty soon? Because I know we're down to just like maybe nine total detonators. Well, first off, Jeff, let's just say it was hot on the water this past fall as well. So yeah, definitely you're going to see them here. I don't remember. Is, are you one day delivery or two? I don't remember for sure, but. They should go out tomorrow, and that means you'll have them Wednesday or Thursday, I'm guessing. Yeah, I would say Thursday, probably. So if you're listening to this podcast, wait one day, come over to TeamRhinoOutdoors.com, pick up your detonator, because we have a ton of colors. But if you want other colors that maybe we don't carry, you can check out custom colors of the detonator at MuskyMayhemTackle.com. So like I said, that thing has been smoking hot. I had a buddy of mine, Brad, coincidentally, he's asking me about... It's like, hey, I think I maybe need to return a bait that my mom or whoever brought me bought me over for Christmas. He's like, I think I got some double twelves. I said, well, if it's a detonator for Musky Mayhem Tackle, you're gonna want to keep that bait around because you and I are gonna crush a big fish on it this year. I don't care if we're in Wisconsin. I don't care how difficult it is gonna be or isn't gonna be to reel in because I've never played with it. I have no idea, but I'm like, this is the year we're gonna crush a big one on it. So. That I, I think there's going to be a lot of guys crushing big fish on this on this bait this year, Brad. Well, I believe if they throw it, they will. I mean, it definitely has me more excited than I've been since probably, what, 2005, 2006 when the Cowgirl first came out. It, it's that kind of bait. I mean, I'm, I'm impatiently waiting through the winter to get back in the boat and actually start throwing it again. I'm pretty pumped about it. It is, it proved to be very incredible. So... We'll see what happens. Yeah, we definitely will see what happens. One other thing that we know of for sure is, the, as of this morning, the Minnesota Muskie Expo got canceled. We kind of had a pretty good feeling about it. I'd seen some stuff on Facebook where other people were posting that the Minnesota Expo was still you know, going, which they weren't wrong, but the, the email that we'd gotten previously to give us that information wasn't giving us a real strong outlook as it was. So there will be no Minnesota Muskie Expo. Check out minnesotamuskieexpo.com i believe it is and they're going to do some virtual stuff and i'm sure we'll have an announcement on this podcast what's going to take place for that virtual muskie expo 
the new the the musky expo is still the i think it's the fourth fifth and sixth is what i saw for 2022 now and i guess at this point brad our only focus is to just you know get get through this this non-show season and i think we've been doing all right doing that and get into just you know getting ready for make the show season of 2022 that much better yeah let's hope so jeff i mean this has been crazy um that's a two-year hit now for uh for the minnesota show you know last year around this time is when we kind of started finding things out and um of course the minnesota show was canceled last year and now here we are again this year so yeah it's unfortunate but at the end of the day i think um we're gonna ride through this pretty well and we'll be looking at next next winter i guess for the next show season and for people that are looking to pick up products, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, you know, Musky Mayhem and us, you know, Team Rhino Outdoors, we're, you know, we're, I'm, we're as geared up on stuff in our website as, as ever before. Like I listed off before, I mean, we're getting tons of new colors in, we're getting new products in, new baits in. So if you check out our website, you check out Musky Mayhem Tackle. I know that the Chicago Expo was, um, or should have been a couple weeks back and you guys had some willow rabbit squirrels and you guys had some show color detonators and different stuff available. So for people that are looking to pick up baits yet, I mean, we're basically a, you know, a shipping box away to, to get you guys what you need to get geared up for the season. So unfortunately we don't have that face to face that we would really prefer at this time of year. We can still get you geared up for the 2022 season. Absolutely. Jeff. And I, I know over the Chicago show weekend, we did a basically an online Chicago show, if you will. And we plan on doing that again for Milwaukee show. And I'm sure we'll do it for the Minnesota side as well. Well, and you know, to go along with that virtual deal, like some of these new baits that we've got in recently, we got a musky train Magnum diesel, and we got, we got a new bait coming from lunge and lures. It should hopefully be here any day. It may be here when we're doing this podcast is the lunge and lures chubby, smaller crankbaits. But I, I had access to them late last season, so we got underwater video coming, and I talk about it every single week. But unfortunately, you know, some people understand where I'm at, you know, with my life. My wife had some surgery recently, and while she's recovering, it's it's a slower process than what we had hoped. So here I am trying to take kids to school, pick kids up from school, work electrically, pack boxes, keep the website updated, new products, everything, do these podcasts. So the video thing, because we've like I said earlier in this this episode, we've been so consistent with the podcast, the video thing is taking a backseat. I just haven't found the time to do that. But along with the virtual end of it, I have some underwater videos, some of these things, and I know Brad's got some videos coming. So we're going to try to keep pushing out as much content as we can this winter to try to keep you guys entertained and in- informed. Absolutely, Jeff. You know, I've been sitting and <laughs> it's been a long two or three weeks that I've been editing footage and and basically i'm thinking you know that first weekend in february launching the very first video and i'm hoping to do a two-week turnaround on every video after that so i'm looking at anywhere from 10 to 12 weeks of, of footage going out every two weeks starting in february it's time demanding and i know you know all about it all too well but um i'm not an editor yeah, I can go out and catch some fish and I can get them on film. But when it comes to the editing side, I struggle. And so I've been putting in some really crazy, stupid hours. You know, I'm doing my normal job during the day, packing up orders and what have you, building bait. And then I come in and start all over at five, seven o'clock at night. 
and start editing till one or two in the morning. So it's been fun, but I've learned a ton and, and I think it's going to be worthwhile. Yeah, I know. I'm anxious to see the full cuts, Brad, because I've obviously get to see some bits and pieces of it. And yeah, it looks like it's coming together well. And I know full well how much that editing thing is. And I mean, when we talk small business, like there's no, uh, there's not much smaller businesses than the two of ours. You know, you have you and Carrie for the most part. For me, it's me and Melissa. I I've had to lean on Alexis a lot lately in the absence of Melissa because she's hardly been in the shop for two weeks, which I don't blame her. It's fine. I'm a big boy. We'll strap it on and, and get after it. You know, you know, I have Brad and I've talked to you packing orders at midnight so many times where you're editing and, and I'm packing orders. So it's uh it's all good. I don't want to sound like we're complaining at all, but that's, that's the struggles of, of small businesses. You know, sometimes there's just not enough hours in the day. At some point I should probably wire less, but I still enjoy it. So I'm, I'm still, I'm still double, du- double dipping or double dutying it or however you want to say. So like I said, you know, that's that's kind of where we're at. Um, not to ramble a whole lot longer because this intro's gotten a little bit long, but you know we talked about it at the top of the po- podcast, episode number ninety-five. We're talking to Jordan Weeks again with the Wisconsin DNR. Our episode number eighty-six. I don't know, back in November, I believe it was. We had some questions to go over, and a lot of it was stocking related. And in the effort to keep these podcasts to, you know, whatever, roughly one hour, one hour and fifteen minutes or so, we didn't want to dive into the stocking side of it. So we're going to do that now. And I, I I always thank the guests for coming out, but it's always good for, you know, for us to have Jordan on. And I truly do appreciate everything he brings to our podcast because of the fact that like Jordan's got no, he's not a guide. He's not a manufacturer. He's got no products to sell. He's it's, it's really just about his passion for musky fishing that brings him on the podcast. He wants to get the information out to people and, you know, quite honestly, you know, we just thank him because of how thankless his job is with the DNR. We we definitely appreciate it, but obviously there's always second guessing. There's always questioning. And it seems like for one reason or another, people are always upset at the at DNR and the DNR employees. And so we appreciate that Jordan, you know, takes his shots and comes in here, even though he knows that, you know, when we make a social media post that somebody's going to blast him on something. And so I know it's kind of long-winded, but I... I just want people to understand where we're coming from. I think you made some valid points there. You know, it, it's one of them deals. If you want to make a difference, uh, try talking to them. You know, that's, that's the crazy part, right? So communication is key. Jordan's got a bunch of things that he's doing. And, you know, at the end of the day, he's working off studies, you know, and that, that's what biologists do. So it's a different world. And I think we got to, got to look at both sides to that. Absolutely. So, I don't think we have anything else to add to this intro. We want to thank everybody for coming out and listening to this episode again. Hopefully you can get some information. If you're a Wisconsin angler, you're definitely going to be able to get some information on our fisheries. We're still looking to try to contact somebody from maybe an Illinois DNR or a Minnesota DNR. So if you're one of those people and you have contact with somebody, a friend, a buddy, whoever that's in a position to you know, present us with some of this information, we'll definitely talk to them too. So without anything else, let's get uh, Jordan on the phone. All right, our guest today is Jordan Weeks with the Wisconsin DNR. For anybody that wants to know a little bit more about Jordan, you can check out episode 17, where you can get his whole profile, background, everything. Otherwise, we did an episode with Jordan not that far back. It was episode 86, so you can refer to episode 86 also. And so we are having Jordan on because it hadn't been, you know, or because of that, those questions. We want to get all those questions answered. So Jordan... 
Thanks for taking time out of your schedule again. I know we've been back to you. This is, I think, your third full episode, which if anybody else is keeping track at home, that is a new record. I don't believe we had anybody else on here with three full episodes. Is that right, Brad? Does that sound about right? Yeah, I would I would think so. I think we've done two a few times here and there, but uh, yeah, this is number three for the first time. Yes. So, Jordan, thanks for being uh, the special number three. I mean, hope, hopefully third time's a charm, and this one actually is uh, a good episode, although I think they're all good episodes, and you're always bringing a lot of, you know, I wouldn't say so much like the the ins and outs on how to catch muskies, but you're bringing a lot of the biological stuff stuff to this podcast and we really appreciate that part of it so thank you for taking time out of your schedule once again to talk muskies with us no problem guys thanks i appreciate you having me okay so in 2020 the wisconsin dnr did very minimal stocking and moving forward into 2021 jordan can you talk a little bit about what's going to happen for 2021 yeah, no problem, no problem. In, t- in 2020, uh, really the only fish that got stocked were the holdover uh, Great Lakes strain that go into Green Bay and our Great Lakes waters, um, including there was a few that went into Lake Winnebago system. They don't actually go into Winnebago, they go upstream. But And then the grand majority went into Green Bay and the associated tributaries of Green Bay. And the only reason we were able to stock those is, like I said, because we had those holding over that were holdovers in our hatchery system already um, because we did not take any eggs at all because of COVID in 2020. And then for 2021, is it looking like things are going to be on track again to resume your normal operations? Yes, we should. Uh, We are on schedule and we've been making plans and, and, you know, make sure we have the safety protocols in place so that we can um, take eggs this spring and plan to be back up and running with our normal stocking schedule. Now, some folks might be wondering if their favorite lake um, that was supposed to be stocked last year will be stocked this year. That answer varies by biologists. Some of the biologists just skipped the year and kept their lakes on a rotation that way. And Some decided to go and take their 2020 quotas and turn them into quotas in 2021. So I can't tell, you know, it, I can't tell you, for sure on Lake XYZ if it's going to be stocked um, because of basically the biologist deciding on their own. But moving forward, let's just say you were on an every every other year schedule. I mean, if, if it was missed in 2020, it might get skipped over for 2021, but then it would be back on par again for 2022. Is that correct? Yeah, most of, most of the lakes that uh, the higher profile waters are stocked biannually, so every other year. Um, so they'll either, you know, miss that one stocking event, which in, from a population level perspective, anglers probably won't know, won't even be able to tell that that year class was gone. If, if you miss three, four, five in a row, then you could probably see it on a population level. But when you talk about just things in one year, it's no big deal. So we should be in good shape um, coming up. We got um, most of our hatchery plan taken care of already. Um, so we know what fish are going where. And that really relates to our genetic management units that we have in the state of Wisconsin. I mean, an example of missing a bunch of year classes would be Green Bay. That missed a pile of them. I think it missed three, four, five of them. You did see a, in my opinion, I think you noticed that there was some year classes missing, but for anybody that fishes in Green Bay knows that's still probably the crown jewel of the Wisconsin muskie program. So it's, I would assume that nobody's even really noticed that there wasn't anything going on last year. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I think that 
Um, you're hundred percent correct in that green Bay, at least, at least as far as size, um, ultimate length green Bay is the, the crown jewel. However, you know, we do have really good success stocking muskies throughout the state of Wisconsin. You know, we have over 660 musky lakes, and a lot of those are maintained exclusively through stocking. So, you know, we, we, we figured out a pretty good system, um, a cost-effective system to be able to stock these lakes across the, basically the entire state so that we have all these opportunities. So, Jordan, you know, one of the unique things, you know, you said that we might not notice a difference missing a year or whatever it might be, that stocking program, maybe it's two-year skip, depending on the lake. You know, over the years, I've noticed, like, certain stockings do way better. And maybe could you describe what kind of takes place? I mean, what are we looking for for the best year of stocking, that best year class, weather-wise, water temps? I mean, what what is it that causes certain years to really succeed well in the stocking? Hey, that's a great question, Brad. I think a lot of people will be interested to hear what we know about that. So what I can tell you with a, a lot of certainty is that the larger the fish is in the fall when you stock it, the better. We have in Wisconsin, we, we basically ask our hatcheries to produce an 11-inch fish at minimum. And they've been able to do that since we asked them to start, or since we started to ask them to do that. And that's, if you think about it, that's basically May. June, July, August, and then in September is when we typically stock fish them. Um, typically the middle of, middle of September towards the end of September. Um, and factors that really play into the survivability of a particular year class are things like the uh, predator fish that exist in the lake. If it's, a, if it's a lake that's got a lot of largemouth bass and the water is really warm, you, that can have an impact. Those largemouth bass love to, to eat small muskies, uh, especially if you got a number of big ones. So what we try to do is stock the fish when the water temperatures are a little bit lower. Uh, largemouth bass and, and smallmouth bass activity, for that matter, that it really um, reduces once the water hits 50 degrees. Um, we rarely stock that late in the year, but uh, the closer you can get to 50, the better it is for survival of these year classes. There's been some research that shows on certain lakes taking fish off of a boat landing and stocking them around the lake in different places, health and survival, but that's not a universal thing. That seems to be lake specific. Um, most of our stockings occur at bow language and, um, you know, you get pretty good success. You know, if you, if you wanted to put one number across the entire state of stocking success, you could probably feel pretty good about like a 20% survival. So if you stocked a hundred fish, you'd have 20 fish that survive. Um, that would be, Again, an average. So that's, there's, there's lakes that are much lower than that, and there's lakes that are a little bit higher than that. But uh, that's probably a good baseline number. So that makes sense. Um, I'm curious, is there a way to make sure that those fish hit that 11-inch mark? I mean, is it based on food? What, what is it? Or is it just basically on time? Yeah, it's, it's food, you know, and that's the hard part about, about raising muskies um, is they are fairly expensive because – in, in Wisconsin, we don't, we feed them all live, live fish from the time they're, you know, they go out on their hatchery ponds, they eat minnows the whole time. And, and we found that their survival is much higher with that compared to ones that we've uh, fed when they're real small. And then we f- finish them on minnows. We found that there was a real big difference in survival on those. So yeah, we feed all the fish in Wisconsin. We feed them all minnows, um, which is very expensive because, you know, to buy, that volume of minnows for our hatchery system to produce 
probably about 60,000 fish per year uh, is, is significant. So it's very expensive to grow those fish, but you know, if we wanted to get them bigger and we had the budget to do it, we could pour the food to them and, you know, we could get them to 15 inches in a year, I'm sure. Is there anything we can do as anglers to, you know, help that along? Is there a fund that, that we can contribute to? Is it musky ink? Is it musky clubs? What is it that helps fund this stuff? Is there, is there private funding on it? Yeah, we've had uh, a number of, you know, musky clubs across Wisconsin donate money to help buy forage and, and it's very helpful and we're very thankful for those efforts. Um, but to kind of put it in perspective for you, Jeff, if you were at our governor Thompson hatchery and I'm, I'm about 90% sure on this number, Per week, when we have the the full bat battery of musky ponds going, it's about seventeen thousand dollars in minnows. So you can you can guess that you know clubs. If you all went together, you could probably come up with a significant amount of money. But it would have to be a pretty good chunk of change from each of the clubs to get to a significant number to keep those fish. The other thing that we have to weigh into all of this is because our hatcheries are not species specific. So our, our musky hatcheries also have walleyes in them typically, and sometimes have other species too. So we have to coordinate with the statutory, uh, the hatchery staff to get those fish out at a time when they're available to do it. Um, and they're not doing other work that's essential. So, so what you're saying is that musky stocking isn't essential. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm saying. It's, it's essential, but there's a number of different operations that have to happen at the hatcheries, right? So we want to make sure that we get our muskies out at a time when we're not interfering with other stuff uh, that are, that are there uh, statutorily. Sure. Just giving you a hard time. No problem. As far as I'm concerned, they're the only thing that's important, but uh, I don't get to quite run this thing yet. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, how we go about, you know, gaining our eggs. How do we decide which muskies we're going to use as broodstock? Does that change year after year? Can you talk a little bit about that process? Sure. I'll try to, I'll try to break it down in a fairly easy to understand way. So, um, back in the early two thousands, um, the, the concept of genetic management, um, was brought to our attention and ironically it was brought to our attention by anglers. Um, for years before that time, we basically had broodstock lakes that we went to to get eggs for muskies on each side of the state. Our two major hatcheries in the north are Governor Thompson and Spooner and Art M. Key and Woodruff. So those were where most of our muskies were grown. Um, and those crews at each respective hatchery had their favorite places to go where they knew they could get the fish fast, they could get a whole bunch of eggs really easy, and it basically it was very easy for them to do, and we raised all kinds of muskies. But after we, we, we were questioned on, on how we did that, by a number of anglers and it actually turned out to be one of the best things that ever happened. It made us look at what our genetic makeup was in the state of Wisconsin. And it also um, allowed us to plan how we wanted to make, make sure we maintained our, our diverse genetic and also make our hatchery system more efficient and have higher integrity genetics wise. So what they do in the West, so the, for the governor Thompson Northwest, the governor Thompson hatchery, has a number of brood lakes over there and there's a odd number to get it on a rotation. So we get these, these native genetics that we found through actually taking samples of fish throughout the North or throughout the entire state of Wisconsin, really. But we've taken fin samples and analyzed these fish to find out which genetic is actually native. And the ones that were here before, let's just say way back when, whatever time you pick it um, versus what we have right now. 
So interestingly enough, we did a really cool study over on Lacoudre, which is one of our um, very well-known musky waters in Northwest Wisconsin. And we had scale samples from 1956. So we could get genetic material off of those. And then we had a number of different samples from 1956 to like 2008 or 2010 or something like that. We analyzed those dead different time series. And what we found is even though there had been stockings into Lacoudre from places like uh, Mud Callahan, and there was actually a stocking in there from northeast Wisconsin, from the Monaco area, why, we're not, I'm not sure, that's way before my time, but um, we found out that those other stocking events didn't contribute to the genetics of Lacoudre at all. So the genetic that's currently in Lake Lacoudre is exactly the same as what it was in 1956. So it's pretty amazing that some of these waters are very resilient to stocking from outside sources. Now we see that generally across the the, the, the range of northern Wisconsin, that the genetic that's in the lake tends to group with that similar genetic around that area. They do tend to group by hatchery, but there is some outliers that, that showed uh, a different genetic around. Well, me personally, I would have to say this, Jordan. Uh, my largest uh, Wisconsin fish came out of Lacoudre. So it was just shy of 50 inches. It was like 49 and 7 eighths or something like that. So I love that genetic. Yeah, there's there's a number of lakes up there that still produce some really large fish in that, you know, in, in almost uh, Minnesota territory. You know, we get those 54, 55, a, a few, a handful um, in the last 10 years. We've seen them over there. Um, in the western part of the state, when you get the lakes that have real high productivity, even stocked waters, there's actually one that I can never remember the name of, but we got a, a 50 pounder twice, the same fish twice in that lake, two consecutive years. And she was just a shad, a tad, a tad bit over 50, but you can imagine what she looked like at 50 pounds. So we have these brood lakes set up in the western part of the state, Lacoudre, the Chippewa Flowage, and Lost Land and Teal. And we rotate those every three years. Um, the broodstock lakes don't get stocked back unless they're from that lake. So, for example, when the chip of flowage is used as our brood lake, it gets stocked back with a few chip of flowage fish to replace the eggs that we took. What we don't stock those fish, then we don't stock lost land and teal fish back in the chip. So, we only put the source stock back into the, the broodstock lakes. And in the north uh, east part of the state, we have pelican. Kentuck, Big Arb. Um, we use the Monaco chain a couple times. Um, those are our main broodstock lakes over that way. And we found that they, the genetic that's in those lakes has been maintained through a long time series. Um, when we actually pick, send the, the genetic samples to a lab, it's, it's basically showing that we have good diversity and that this is a good stock that we have in those, in those parts of the state. Along with that being said, how many tigers are you stocking a year, Jordan? Or is that something that you guys have never done or do? Or we don't. We we currently don't stock any hybrids. So all the hybrids that we catch in northern Wisconsin are native, um, or natural hybrids. They, you know, are natural crosses. Back, let's see. When I was in high school, which was like, oh man, now we're going back. Nineteen ninety through ninety four in that time series they used to stock hybrids they stocked a bunch of them in the madison chain i used to catch them as a kid when i was bass fishing down there uh the reason we stopped really was because that you know they were kind of a dead end and we switched over to the true muskies now 
there, there are options to, to stock those. We do have in our genetic management uh, plan, we do have the ability to allow stocking of hybrids. We just haven't had a lot of interest in doing that. Um, the state probably wouldn't raise those fish um, just because we don't have enough space to grow as many trues as we'd like. Uh, so we wouldn't probably do it, but if there's a potential because we do allow private groups to stock in some of our waters, um, they potentially could buy hybrids and stock those out on their own with a stocking permit. Yeah, that's just kind of interesting. I mean, you're hearing about a lot of tigers in the last couple of years. So I was just kind of curious if you guys were actually stocking them or if they were all natural. Yeah, we seem, we, we tend to see that and we tend to see it in certain lakes, you know, I mean, obviously they got to have pike in them, right? But we tend to see them when you have these springs that, that are, that warm up real fast, they're real cold late and then they warm up real fast and the muskies are in at the same time that the pike are ending. Typically it works with a male pike and a female muskie because female pike typically are spawning when there's still ice on the lake. Like the biggest pike in the systems are doing it way early and uh, usually are gone but it's not impossible to do it both ways. We do know that you could have a hybrid from both crosses. Well, my assumption then, if that's the case, then potentially we should have some decent years of, of uh, potential for tigers recently, I would say, because I think almost all of our springs lately have been that where everything's kind of really late. Ice comes off super late. And then all of a sudden, boom, it goes from winter to 90 really fast. So, I mean, if, if that's the theory behind it, then th- there's a potential for some decent tiger fishing coming up in the future. Potentially, obviously you don't, you don't have the data to suggest that, that, you know, for sure, but based off what you're saying, that's kind of the way the weather pattern's gone the last three or four years. Right. And that's the tricky part, right? Because in as many, you know, I've been sampling muskies for a long time in the state, 20 years or so. And I don't remember ever catching a hybrid in one of our nets. Um, the only time I've ever gotten them is when we're electrofishing and it's hard to get muskies with electrofishing gear. And so because they don't act like a spawning muskie, when we go out to do our surveys, um, we do our surveys very similar to, you know, Minnesota and Michigan and all other people who try to catch muskies. We put trap nets in shallow water and these fish blunder into them. Well, those tigers tend not to be in those areas at that time and we just don't catch them. So we don't have really good information on even in the lakes we know have a lot of tigers. We'll, you know, we get reports from anglers that say, hey, we catch, we're catching a bunch of tigers out here. Chippewa flowage has always been one that's had, you know, really good hybrids. But we hardly ever catch them. So we have no clue, you know, other than the anglers telling us, hey, we're catching hybrids, that, you know, what the population is like out there. So it is kind of a cool thing. You know, I mean, for as many muskies as I've caught in Wisconsin, which is quite a few, I caught my first hybrid uh, a couple of years ago in the summertime that I know was not a stocked fish. So that was, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, definitely. One thing that's kind of weird though, is how like, I mean, obviously you said it was be, you know, pike population is going to help produce tigers. Obviously they have to be there, but how like certain lakes just have more of a, a reputation for tigers than others do. It's, it's kind of interesting. So the lake that I'm by is, you know, Pelican. And it seems as though there's a reasonable tiger population there. Is there anything within a lake that, you know, that makes it more conducive to have tigers? Cause it seems like that's kind of the case in Wisconsin. Certain lakes are more known for tigers than others. Yeah, it, it seems And this, I don't have really good data on this and it's really, it's really interesting that, you know, the scientific literature really doesn't have a lot of information on hybrids other than um, experiments that are done in laboratories. 
so anyway, in nature, it's hard. So we kind of have to use our anecdotal information. So this is this is what this is. This is almost almost like reckless speculation. But um, we tend to see more hybrids where there's limited spawning habitat. So in certain situations, and pelican doesn't seem like that's the point. That is the poster child for that to me because because it's got a lot of what I would call pretty good spawning habitat on the lake. But it has something to do with the fact that they like to be in the same spot at the same time. So it could be as simple as just a small um, inlet, a creek or a stream that's coming in that concentrates these fish and they're all using the same spot. Um, and then you'll have a lake down the road that maybe has a similar situation and, and the muskies just don't want to be where the pike are. You know, it's kind of interesting. I was on, um, I had a friend that fished Lake of the Woods a lot and they would go up, they weren't muskie fishing, but they'd be up there early in the year and they would see the pike in these big, big bays. The ones that really were really big and, and really shallow. And the muskies were all in these smaller bays that were adjacent to these big bays that were much smaller in size, but they had very similar characteristics. But so when they were fishing around in there, they noticed that the muskies were using a different type of habitat than the pike. And what we see is when we have lakes with a lot of similar habitat um, or limited habitat, we have the potential for hybrids. So Jordan, one thing I would say is sometimes the you know, Wisconsin muskie fishery, Wisconsin DNR, they kind of come under fire as far as not enough muskies, not enough big fish. We're not using the right genetics, all those different things. And I know you've dealt with that for, for years. I would imagine you have some data though, that would probably prove otherwise. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, there's always going to be folks that when presented with data say, well, that's not truthful or whatever. And I guess I can't worry about that. What I can tell you, though, from some of the uh, metrics that we have recorded in the last, let's just say, let's just say, twenty years or so, that the number of hours it takes to catch a legal muskie in Wisconsin has went from about a hundred hours down to about forty hours. And this is from our creel surveys. So this is not necessarily, um, you know, Brad who knows how to catch them very well. His number would be much lower than that. It takes into account Brad and also, you know, dude who doesn't know which end of the rod to use. So it's, it's an average, and we found that the number of hours it takes has is, is decreased tremendously. I have actually looked at a lot of information on my own to do some of my own seminars and talks and found that using the Muskie's Inc. database is a really good way to kind of talk with anglers about this particular issue. The best way to, to look at it is like when you took, if you take from 1990 to 2018, and you can look at trends and catches and numbers and size and all that. When you look at that number for the state of Wisconsin, we almost always register about 3,000 fish, plus or minus 500 or so with muskies, Inc. Um, annually. That's more than basically anywhere. So we, we do register a lot of fish. We have a lot of fish in Wisconsin. The second thing that we notice is over that span of time, the number of 45-inch fish, 48-inch fish, and 50-inch fish have been increasing over time. And that's even true if you take out Green Bay. So I've done that with all the analyses. I've taken out Green Bay fish, and you still see an increase um, when you plot the trend line of those numbers, those catches, the number of fish registered by muskies and people only. So that's not everybody. I may have said it before in a different podcast. I've never once registered a fish in muskies Inc. Um, and I know there are a bunch of other people like me that, that haven't registered any of that fish. So it's a good way to kind of gauge where the state's at. And that number really has gone up 
since about the year 2000. So we do have good data that, that suggests that the number of big fish in the state is growing. All of our fisheries metrics that were taken um, from a scientific standpoint on our lake surveys and whatnot, almost all of them on almost all of our waters to show an, uh, an increase in average size and the largest fish that we're catching. I would say that, you know, the good old days of musky fishing really are right now. Um, and this is all independent of this thought that's out there that, our genetics are bad. Our genetics are not bad. There's nothing bad about our genetic. And I think when people say that, um, it, it, it puts a thought into their head that says, well, they're all inbred fish and they all don't have the propensity to grow large. Well, there's a ton of things that go into that. And, you know, you can, I like to talk about it in, in kind of other terms to get people thinking a little bit differently about it. If you think about, and Brad, you might really like this because I know you're a bow hunter, but you think about, you know, the places that, that historically you can shoot a really big giant whitetail buck, Buffalo County, Southern Iowa, Pike County, Illinois, the places like that, right? Everybody, the first thing you talk to when you talk to those folks, the first thing they talk about is that genetics are great. Well, if you look at the scientific literature about whitetail deer genetics, and I'm talking about the stuff that's peer reviewed by other scientists and if it's BS, those scientists say this is BS and then it doesn't get published. Like that stuff, the genetic is not it. The genetic is very similar from those areas, like very similar. But what's different is the time that that animal is on the earth or its age, the habitat and the um, conditions that it has to live in. So habitat and food, that all plays into the size of those white-tailed deer. It's the same exact thing with muskies. One thing that we can say with a lot of certainty in Wisconsin, we've ran some genetic uh, tests on our data, and we found that the sweet spot for growing numbers of larger fish, fish that are 50 inches or larger, are lakes that are 2,000 acres or larger. And when you think about uh, Minnesota's 100 musky waters, most of those waters, the grand majority of those waters, are well over 2,000 acres. When you look at Wisconsin, when we have 660-some musky lakes <laughs> we we have much smaller lakes on on average and so we don't have as many of those really large lakes that help those fish get large um, those large lakes if you think about it really simply they have the better habitat they have more forage and they have the opportunity for those fish to grow larger before they get a hook stuck in their face or somebody you know a pan fisherman catches them and takes them home to mount them so you know that stuff plays into this genetic concept now Having said all of that, if you want to talk about the genetic component, we've done a lot of that research as well. And I've talked a little bit earlier in this podcast about the fin clips that we take and the scales that we have. We have tons and tons and tons and tons of genetic samples from across the state. We found that our genetic, the genetic, the, um, the genetic measurement unit that, that the professional geneticists use to determine if a fish population is, let's just say, inbred or if you want to call them mutts, that's called introgression. We don't have a lot of that in our fisheries. Um, we have very little, and we can see that, you know, we can give a, uh, our geneticist a sample from a particular lake and not tell them the lake, and they can tell us where it's from because we have so many samples around the north. So it's, it's a really well-documented uh, genetic plan that we've come up with in the state of Wisconsin, and it really comes down to basins. So we have a genetic management unit that's in the Chippewa River Basin, which was one of our native strongholds of muskies. We have a genetic management unit that's in the Wisconsin River Basin. 
and we separate those. We don't cross those basin lines with genetic stock. We also have a genetic management unit for Lake Michigan and Lake Superior. And then we have the southern part of the state, which never historically had muskies. And we call that the basically southern part of the state or the place that we can stock whatever genetic we want. So there has been a number of, of lakes in the state, um, relatively small number that have been stocked with all kinds of different stuff. Um, most people want to talk about leech lake fish. There's been four lakes or so, five I guess now with Geneva uh, that have been stocked. Well, four that have been stocked directly and five that have had fish in them because of movement through a dam. So I can talk a little bit about that if you want, or we can move on to something else. I'm kind of curious, Jordan. I mean, you, you hinted towards it, but why are you being that specific about not mixing those breeds? I mean, what is the main goal with that? What's the purpose? Well, the purpose is, um, Brad, because they are genetically distinct, right? We can tell the difference from a fish from the Chippewa River Basin. Um, basically, I can tell you, if our gene- I can't, our geneticists can. Um, you know, we can give them a fin sample from the Chippewa flowage and they'll tell us, yeah, that's a Chippewa flowage fish or that's a Lacouture fish or that's a, you know, lost landed teal or, or round lake or, you know, you name it. We can, we can, those are all different. So they're, they're unique enough, these, these different stocks in these lakes, even though they're all upper Chippewa fish, their existence in these waters have changed their genetic to a point where they are distinguishable from one another, which goes against all this, you know, calling them mutts, right? And when you have this diversity, you know, it, it's a good thing from a fisheries perspective. Okay. That, that's what I'm trying to understand. That fisheries perspective is that you need to be able to know that that was the natural fish in that body of water. I mean, what, that's what I'm asking. What is the purpose in that, though? Right. It's to, it's to maintain that genetic diversity through our stocking program, right? So it's impossible to say that we can maintain 100% diversity when we're stocking fish because the, 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 the best diversity are from natural populations, right? So in Minnesota, Leech Lake would be your most diverse fishery. If you measured the Leech Lake genetic of the native fish that have been there, right? You're going to get a very diverse, diverse genetic. It's going to have, you know, low introgression. It's going to have high genetic diversity, right? And when you take those fish, so say you take 10 fish out of there, and you take them to a hatchery pond, and then every year you get your your eggs from those ten fish. Your genetic uh, diversity metrics are going to be reduced through time because you're only taking the genetic of those ten fish versus the hundred thousand fish that are in Leech Lake. Yeah, that makes sense. For sure, I can respect that. I, I was just, I don't know. I'm trying to understand. You know, you're saying you got the chip fish. You've got all these different bodies of water. I'm just kind of curious on, you know, what that really truly means and, and how you guys are trying to manage that, you know? I mean, you've explained it all I'm, in my head though. I'm sitting here spinning thinking, man, the, the amount of work that you guys are doing to try to maintain that gets to be pretty extensive. Yeah. It, and it's, it, Brad, it hasn't happened overnight, right? We've, we've been working at this for close to 20 years now to try to figure out the best, the best genetic management plan that we can have to maintain that our, our rare genetics that we do have in water bodies in Wisconsin um, while still maintaining our hatchery system. Right. And, and we have these basins delineated the way we do because most of our, most of our genetics groups that way. So if you think about it before people were there, there were muskies in the Chippewa river and there were muskies in the Wisconsin river 
And both those were genetically different. So what happened once we dammed these systems and we came as people and started moving fish all over the place, that those, those native river genetics that were in those two bodies of water got moved around to these other water bodies. Through time, they've diverged to, to certain, a certain extent and, have main, and some have maintained the, the original genetic. So we have those in units that we can describe easily and we can also um, logistically actually get the eggs and distribute them, right? So you're, you're always ba- um, balancing the, you know, we want to maintain our best genetic management practices with the feasibility of actually doing it and the money we're given to do it. And that's what we're, that's what we've, that's what we've done in Wisconsin. So Jordan, correct me if I'm wrong, but the other reason you want to have a bunch of genetic diversity amongst these fish is in case you'd have an issue like a VHS, it doesn't wipe out your entire genetics if they're all essentially brothers and sisters of each other. That's a great point, Jeff. And, and yeah, that sometimes happens. And I'm I'm not going to say that it always happens with private growers, but, um, you know, sometimes they don't draw off when they grow fish to sell to different muskie clubs or whatever, they don't always draw from a really diverse set of parents and that can happen. So if, if, if you, if you have a fish population that has very low genetic diversity and you have a disease like, you know, VHS come in, it could kill every single one of them, you know, compare that to what happened on Lake St. Clair, where you have this super diverse population of muskies out there. VHS came in at least a couple times now and has killed a bunch of fish but there's still a whole bunch of fish there, right? So those fish obviously either didn't encounter the virus or they're resistant to it. And that's what, that's the best measure. And that was a great point that you made. I'm surprised that I forgot to talk about it, but that's one of those things that you want to have in your population, a diverse genetic so that it can withstand those type of things. Well, cause I think I know they, they started to change up the green Bay program once VHS came in a lot. And that's why I think they're working with these other, these other brood lakes that they're still trying to develop, I believe it's like Elkhart and Anderson because they're trying to even get more genetic diversity within the Great Lakes strain muskies in Green Bay in case there's that issue that that could pop up. You don't wipe out your entire muskie population. Oh, for sure. And Green Bay is a whole podcast on its own. It's, it's so cool. Like when they first started stocking fish out there, they literally were brothers and sisters. So like they were from a really small number of fish, um, parents anyway. And then through time, what we've done is we've gotten some fish from um, the Georgian Bay area that genetic brought it in. We've got other Great Lakes stocks and brought it in. We've got some other from Michigan, from Lake St. Clair the last few years. So what we're trying to do is exactly what you're talking about. We want to bolster that population genetically so that we don't have some catastrophe happen um, from a fish disease, something that we already know about or something that we don't know about that's on the road. So yeah, that's, that's a perfect example of of why having good genetic diversity is, a, is, is what we want in the fish populations. And you were talking earlier about how the Southern Wisconsin genetics, you can pretty much stock anything you want to stock. But then I also have a question like, is there, is it a pipe dream to hope for spotted muskie to be stocked in inland Wisconsin waters? Is there the availability now to stock spotted muskies potentially in Southern waters? So when you say spotted muskies, are you talking about Great Lakes stock or Leaf Lake stock? E- either one, I guess I would say. I, I, I'm i just trying to figure out because the answer's uh, slightly different um, and slightly the same, I guess. So in, in the southern part of the state, so basically the southern half of Wisconsin, there was never any native, native muskies. 
we don't have any genetics there to preserve. So we've called those those lakes in that part of the state basically universal receptors. So we allow uh, private clubs to stock. We, we aren't. We don't have strict genetic guidelines for those folks stocking fish. They can stock whatever fish they want, right? As long as they get a stocking permit and permission from the biologist. So um, in in basically the southern half of Wisconsin, pretty much the southern half, um, most lakes could get stocked with whatever. Um, they could be leech lake fish. They could be Great Lakes fish. They could be hybrids. They could be you know the fish that the state of Wisconsin already raises and stocks down there. And, and so from that perspective in those lakes, you can certainly, you know, if a club has a, you know, a feather in their hat that they want to do certain thing, they certainly can. However, what I would tell them is, is a cautionary tale because it's been done in a few places, um, with relatively limited success. So leech lake fish have been stocked in Lake Monona since about 2005, about 22 to 23% of the total fish stocked in the lake are Leech Lake, Oregon, and they're stocked, I think, by the Cap City chapter down there every year. Um, I can't recall exactly how many fish it is per year, but it's not a huge number. After, whatever, 15 years or so from 2005 till now, only about 10% of the muskies in Lake Monona are of Leech Lake, Oregon. So despite being stocked about 22%, only about 10% of the fish out there are of Leech Lake origin, um, meaning 90% of the fish are of Wisconsin origin. And that basically goes, talks to survival of those two stocks. They were also stocked in Lake Wissota at about 26% of the total number of fish stocked. And that one has been real bad, um, less than 3% of the, in two different samples, less than 3% of the fish are of Leech Lake origin. Out there, Eaton Well is another one, a really giant reservoir um, that's basically zero or very small number of, of muskies that are of leachate lake origin in there, although there hasn't been as many stock there as some um, of the other two lakes I mentioned. And then Lake Geneva has had a few fish stocked in there um, just in the last few years, and we don't have any survival information on that. So. Um, what we found and what other scientists have found in other places, peer-reviewed literature and from Illinois and other places are typically the locally adapted stock or the local fish do the best. You know, Leech Lake is pretty far north from Lake Monona. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. It's also kind of, I'm, I'm a bit surprised that Pete Wells had him put in there because I would assume Pete Mell probably has a, has natural reproduction in it, doesn't it? Um, I don't know if it's been measured out there or not. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. Sometimes those reservoirs can pull it off. Sometimes they can't. I, I don't know that either way. I guess I can't answer that question, but it's, it's in the Southern part of the state outside of the native range. So our rules say it can be done and the local club over there, or at least I think there's a couple of clubs over there, um, that have bought the fish and stuck them in there. Um, I, I'm pretty sure they're not having good success catching them. Um, that's that's their that's their deal so interesting so another question we had jordan was is it a pipe dream to hope for spotted muskie to be stocked in inland inland wisconsin waters now if you want to go specifically inland i think you can talk about a change that's going to happen or in the process of happening um within stocking of the spotted muskie program is that something that you're able to talk about sure 
well, we in in our genetic management plan that we've that we finalized here not too long ago, a, couple, a year or so ago, we have switched all of our waters that flow into the Great Lakes um, to quotas that are of Great Lakes origin. So, if you think about it, um, and you have, I, I guess, Winnebago chain, I guess, is the easiest one to think about because it's well known and and big. Um, that flows north to Green Bay. Um, everything in that drainage. Um, should technically get Great Lakes stocked. Um, I want you to be careful, Jeff, because you used spotted muskies a couple times, and people like to call leech lake fish spotted too, and we would not be stocking leech lake fish into those any of those waters. Um, we would have the ability to stock Great Lakes fish, though, and they are not the same genetically, not even close. Sure. In my, in my circles that we run with, spotted muskies are the stuff you find in Green Bay, Leechers are what you'd find in like Madison, for example. In my opinion, yeah, spotted muskies are never leech lakers for the, for the purpose of this conversation. Okay, I can get with that. I can get with that. It's not realistic for us to stock leech lake fish in northern Wisconsin. We have our, our approved um, really nice genetics that we have up there. So we wouldn't be doing that up there. But in the southern part of the state, it's, it's fair game. Yeah, so it sounds like basically if you're a local club and you're looking to get spotted muskies or or uh, leech lake muskies, leechers as you would call them, in your waters, it's just a matter of a, probably applying for a permit. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I would I would confer with the local biologist first and, and get their blessing before you did all the extra work of a permit and whatnot, but uh, just make sure it's going to be approved. Some lakes have management plans that, that change, but you know, I, I can't speak for each individual biologist, but they're at least allowed in the southern part of the state. Let's just say that. So let's, it's going further on that with the spotted musky program, the Great Lakes ones, you're going to have to do that. So one of the ones I'm going to talk about would be like Shawano Lake. That's, that's no longer necessarily on the, what does it be? The Chippewa, Chippewa Flowage, Wisconsin River strain muskies. Now they're going to be stri- strictly switched over to the Great Lakes spotted muskies. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, well, mostly um, those were upper Wisconsin fish that got stocked in there uh, into Shawano Lake. Um, that's from the Mardemke Hyatry. So those were upper Wisconsin fish that went in there. But yeah, from now on, the quota will be set to be Great Lakes spotted muskies. And we're, we're actually ramping up our hatchery production so um, to make sure that we can accomplish that. So we have to switch around some of our quotas to make sure that we get the correct Great Lakes stock. We, we raise enough of those Great Lakes fish to stock in those waters. Now, we're not going to be able to do it all the lakes that we have quotas for right away. So there might be some lakes that don't get stocked for a few years until we can get the Great Lakes genetic stock in our hatchery system to a sufficient level. So if that's that's the place that we have the most growth to, uh, to kind of move towards right now. Well, that's good that you said that because that was one of those things I was curious about was whether or not you were going to actually be able to ramp up production to meet the demand now. Because obviously before it was basically you know, the, the Green Bay Winnebago system, that was pretty much all that was getting them in Wisconsin. Right. And, and let me be, let me be perfectly clear. We'll never meet the demand, right? Cause the demand depends, I guess, who you ask for demand, but even amongst our biologists, like they always ask for more fish than the state can produce financially and space wise. So <laughs> our biologists, let's put it this way. Our biologists want to stock more fish than we currently are. We just can't grow more right now. Of, of any of the stocks that we have. So, so yeah, I mean, theoretically you could have spotted muskies in, in the Madison chain by our genetic management. If, if there was a source for them 
and, and a club could get their hands on some. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I understand that. But is anybody outside of the Wisconsin DNR actually raising these things? Are there any private, uh, like, gallons or whoever? Are, are they raising any spotted muskies? Well, that's, that's the really tricky part about our genetic management system is, like, um, you know, if, if you're a club in northwest Wisconsin, um, that's the Chippewa River Basin, and you want to stock fish, right, and you want to buy them from a private grower, as of this podcast, I'm not aware of any private grower that has upper Chippewa genetics to stock up there. So we would deny the permit because it's not the right genetic stock, right? Um, but we do have a mechanism that allows those private growers to solicit eggs from us. So we can give them fertilized eggs. They can raise them at their facility, and then they can sell them back to the club, right? Yep. So we have that ability. We haven't been asked to do that yet by any of these uh, private growers. So there's there's a disconnect, and there must be a business reason. Um, the reason that I hear from some of these guys is they can st- sell all the muskies that they can raise right now, most of them outside of Wisconsin. Evidently, you know, some of our private growers have been selling fish all over the place, like Pennsylvania and, you know, who knows where. They go all over, um, most of which are not in Wisconsin. So there is a little bit of disconnect there. Um, that is something that the department's working with the private growers and aquaculture association to try to fix. There are, there are some growers that currently have the upper Wisconsin stock. So we have options there, but to my knowledge, they don't, uh, have the great lakes spotted fish either. So, you know, that's one of those niche markets that theoretically could be filled because those private growers could ask us for those eggs as well. So it sounds like, Brad, you could have another business opportunity there if you want to start raising spotted muskies over in your little ponds you get over there. Boom. There is, uh, not too far from me, the Minnesota muskie farm. So he uses a ton of these ponds over in this area for that exact reason. Yeah, I imagine he's, uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of excess fish at the end of the year over there. Seems to be there's a lot of demand for those. That's amazing. I, I don't know the number of fish that he raises anymore. There was a time when I used to visit with him here and there, but I'm, I'm guessing he's as busy as he wants to be. All right. So Jordan, another question that we had was, you know, it says, why can't stocked fish naturally reproduce? Example would be Madison. Now, I think you're going to probably tell me something about this, but as far as I'm concerned, as far as I know, stocked fish can reproduce. It's more about the habitat within the lake. See, you can do this podcast, Jeff. You got it. You got (laughs) the answer. I mean, really, that's it. Um, lot. It comes down to something as simple as, as, as this, like the fish that we stock are sexually viable. Like they can produce eggs and milt. And theoretically, if they had the right habitat, they could spawn. The problem comes is when we stock these fish into a lake that they haven't, they weren't born in, they sometimes have trouble figuring out where that spot could be. So, you know, they could put their eggs on a, on a piece of habitat that just is not conducive to egg survival. And the other factor that comes into is, especially in the southern part of the state where most of our stock waters are, we have really high human densities, right? And there are very little natural, you know, habitat left on these lakes. Um, the lakes that tend to have the highest natural production have the highest amount of natural, um, non-human changed shorelines. Ultimately, I think if we could get it to the point where these stocked fish actually successfully reproduced, it would take some of the pressure off the, off the hatcheries. Well, and, and I don't know how many people know this, but that's actually the, the purpose of our stocking program, right? 
our stocking program is not to go to a lake and stock it for a hundred years. Like we want to stock fish there for a period of time and then hopefully step back, which is very similar to what the Minnesota plan. I don't know if it currently still is, but I know it was back in the day when they first started, they had theory where you could stock a certain number of years and then step back and they'll do it all on their own. I think, I don't know for sure, but I think they're finding out that they're not doing it at, at as high a rate as they'd hoped in some of these lakes. But, um, that would even be a win, right? If you had a limited amount of natural reproduction and then had to supplementally stock with a, a much smaller number of fish that would allow us to, um, stock some of these other waters that, that have slipped through the cracks for a number of years. I actually just got a spreadsheet from an angler in Northwest Wisconsin in the area that he fishes in. It was kind of cool when you looked at the data, some of the lakes and it, it corresponded to his fish catches too, right? So some of the lakes got stocked very frequently with a very good number. Some lakes were stocked for a period of time with a really good number and then basically dropped off the table. And the angling success followed that trend with about a 10-year lag. So, you know, you're talking about all the different uh, things that muskies need for, for doing the natural reproduction. And you're right. I mean, the structure and the, the change of all these lakes over a period of years with people and whatever else. But one of the things that I always wonder about is dams. So a lot of these lakes, I know throughout Minnesota, I'm sure throughout Wisconsin, have had dams put in place so the lakes actually grew or became one lake out of two lakes or something like that. When they do that, um, does that kind of change some of the structure too that they normally would reproduce on? For sure. Um, most of you know our, our true native muskies in Wisconsin were all river fish, right? So they spawned in rivers. And you know when a when a river is dammed up, that habitat that was riverbed is flooded and tilted in. And the the really interesting thing uh, about musky eggs is they are not adhesive. Um, Northern Pike eggs are adhesive, so when they're fertilized, they're sticky. So when they the female drops the eggs and the male drops his sperm, the egg becomes sticky and then they do it over vegetation so that that egg hits a piece of vegetation and it hangs there until it hatches. Musky eggs don't do that. They fall to the bottom. So if you have a really mucky area and a musky egg hits that, it, it basically suffocates because there's no oxygen down on that, that muck. But uh, we found that areas with even sand, um, areas that have a lot of wood where the musky eggs actually fall on a piece of wood, um, then we can we have some natural reproduction happening. Sand is okay. Um, generally not rock, but um, it's certainly possible. And, and muskies, especially in Green Bay, because they, first of all, they don't know what they're doing really. They put their eggs on rock out there sometimes. We're finding eggs out there, but we're just not finding young in a lot of places. The one place that seems out on Green Bay to be a really good, well, not really good, but we found young muskies that are not stocked are the Menominee River and Little Sturgeon Bay. Those are the only two places that I play a handful of fish. You know, with with the makings of these different dams and different things, I mean, obviously that's going to deteriorate some of that structure, like you said. So I'm curious, though, you know, as you start stocking these bodies of water, would it be beneficial to place those fish maybe in a spawning area, per se, Jordan? Or is it too late after, you know, they've been born and they've been raised for half a year? No, I think that it did. Uh, they, there's there's definitely a possibility, and there has been some research that shows that there may be some imprinting um, to stocking location. Um, so that definitely could be worthwhile to try to do is put those fish in areas where you think they could possibly spawn. 
you know, I, I'm just curious, you know, in my own world anyway, like in the spring, a lot of times what I'll do is I'll cruise around, look at the inlets, the outlets of different creeks and, and what have you, not only on musky water, but on water that's for walleyes or northerns or whatever you might see in their suckers. It's always cool to watch a bunch of fish coming up into a stream and doing their thing. And you get an opportunity to see a lot of big fish, but the muskie is one that you don't normally see coming up those streams. So that's why I was curious about it. Yeah. Most of the time they're actually the active spawning is at nighttime with muskies too. So that's another reason that we have a tough time seeing them a lot of the time. Yeah. You know, you always see every spring you'll see, especially like on Mille Lacs, it seems like a, a ton of people see them on Mille Lacs doing their thing. And you'll see some of those videos on social media and what have you, but uh, it's always cool to see that kind of stuff. Very cool. I agree. All right. So not necessarily in line with stocking exa- exactly, but is there, somebody asked, is there a tracking study being done on Green Bay? And if so, is the information public knowledge? Yes. And I actually have or had that information with me here. Let me see if I can get it. Um, there's actually a project that's, I think it's going to be finishing up here pretty quick. Um, they had 60 fish with, uh, radio and or sonic transmitters in them. They have, uh, in Green Bay, there's a huge array of sonic, uh, receivers, um, that basically would tell, they're going to tell the folks at UWSP exactly where these fish were. Um, there's receivers in every river mouth. There's a uh, basically a fence of receivers across the upper bay. So if they leave Green Bay proper and head out to Lake Michigan, um, the folks will know um, with the intent to find out how many fish are spawning in the rivers and how many are spawning in the bay. And I can't find the document right now, but it, if memory serves, and this is pretty close, I think about 55 to maybe 60% of the fish were river spawners and 40-ish percent were bay spawners and they found eggs in the fox river and, and other places that they looked uh, but like i said before they don't they haven't found any young fish or hatched eggs in those areas um as of yet but that that will be published uh i assume coming up pretty soon uh, the gentleman who was doing the work just defended his thesis not too long ago um so i would look for a publication in the next couple of years uh, it, I can try to get, uh, if you contact me at DNR, uh, my DNR email, I can try to get a, a published summary of that, but it's, that's essentially what it was. They're not publishing like home ranges of these fish at this point. So that brings me to the other question, like any future studies that are coming up that you're looking forward to? Hmm. Well, that's, that's a good question. We, uh, we have a number of, of research priorities that we just uh, went through as a statewide musky team uh, recently. And one of the ones that I would hope gets funded and we're kind of in that cycle right now, we're work planning to try to see what we're going to get funded um, in the next couple of years. But one of the ones that I'm really interested in is, is how do we determine population on our reservoirs? Because our reservoirs are typically very good musky waters but we don't get very good population estimates because those fish uh, do go upstream in the springtime and we have a really hard time catching them. So that's one of the research projects I'd like to, to see go forward. Um, we also want to try to figure out a metric for sampling our rivers because Wisconsin also has a really about a hundred river segments. That's not a hundred rivers. It's a hundred river segments that are in various counties that, 
that are classified musky water. And uh, we don't have good ideas on how many fish are in those. Um, some of those fish or some of those populations are naturally repro- reproducing. So we'd like to get um, some research done on those systems. So Jordan, where, where can an angler go find all this information? I know through the DNR site and what have you, but what's the easiest method? If they were looking at a certain body of water, they wanted to see what the stocking was, so on and so forth, these different studies, how can they access that? I mean, the easiest way to do it is uh, figure out who the biologist is for that area. Um, and they're all listed on the DNR website by county. So if you know what lake or what county your lake is in, send that person an email, um, ask your questions, and you know those, those people should get back to you. If you have trouble uh, getting a hold of anybody, because um, we do have some uh, vacancies right now, people can always email me. My email is really easy to find on the DNR website. Email me, and I'll either get you the information or get you a person to talk to about that information. That's the best part of our job is talking about fishing with anglers that want to learn. And so um, you can get some of that information on your own. Um, stocking information you can get on our website, things like that. You can get uh, readily. Some published surveys are there, um, although those probably won't be much musky-centric. So they may or may not give you good information on musky specifically. Um, which is why I say you should just talk to to the biologist because they'll be able to give you actually the nitty gritty, right? Well, I mean, I think that's probably one of those things that not many people take advantage of. Very few. I, I probably get a dozen, a dozen a year, a dozen inquiries. And, and most of those inquiries, to be honest with you, will be through my personal Facebook page, which I prefer people do not use. I prefer that they email me at my work address so I get paid to answer their question. So, yeah, I mean, I, I still answer almost all the questions that come to my personal Facebook page, but I don't want to do it that way. I'd love to have people just contact me at work so I can I can take the time to get the data that they need rather than Sunday when I'm hanging out with my family, I have to answer questions. So, yeah, I mean, get a hold of me. Get a hold of your local biologist. It's a great way to get information. What about guys that text you on like say a Saturday or a Sunday with a screenshot of certain lakes asking you about their locations and you know stocking data on those particular areas? Does it, does this guy have the same initials as me? Yeah, I think he does. I think he I think he might. Yeah. <laughs> that guy's all right. He's all right. <laughs> it's happened once. I won't answer if I don't want to. Well, that's that's good. I do I do know you did say I got to get some information. I'm gonna have to wait till Monday because you didn't have access to it on whatever day whatever day I was texting you. It, it was bad, or I had a couple too many cocktails, and I wanted to get the information right. It could be. Well, I, I appreciate it because I think you gave me the information right, so it's it's helpful. Yeah, I mean, and and like, well, I I mean, we're all happy to do it. That's our job is to to talk with the anglers and. And really, honestly, I can't say it enough. You would be surprised how few questions we get from folks. Hmm, that's interesting. I would have thought it would have been, I would have thought it would have been more, but I, I don't know. Maybe people are afraid that their questions are dumb or whatever. I don't know. Or they just don't know well, what questions to ask. Yeah, that could be it. And I think that's, that's the reason you send an email first and then have them give you a call because then you can just talk through things and, and how things go. But in general, I kind of think of it like, you know, when things are going really good, we don't hear from the public and that's kind of where we're at. And we've been that way for a long time because fishing honestly is really good in Wisconsin right now. It's really good everywhere, but it's, it's really good in Wisconsin. Like I said before, we're catching more big fish than we ever have um, throughout the state. And we've got some really good up and coming fisheries and we've got 
you know, very few new fisheries, but, um, because we have so many, you get, you know, some of these lakes become new again, where they, you know, they get a lot of pressure for a while and then fishing kind of sucks for a while. And then 10 years later, the fishing is really good again because we have so many lakes that happens quite often in Wisconsin. So, yeah, I, you know, the, the beauty of it is, I think Jordan is it's like every body of water, you know, they, they run their cycles, right. And anglers figure it out and they'll ride that cycle until, uh, until they're seeing a difference. So it's interesting. Yeah, to me. Well, Jordan, since you were talking about, you know, kind of like how things are, you know, still on the upswing here in Wisconsin, the other, the last question I think that we had was, are there any genetic giants left in Wisconsin? I, I'm going to say based off some of the talk that you had, uh, let's, let's talk specifically inland muskies. You know, I think you, you touched on it briefly in the beginning about some of the 50 pounders that you'd seen. Like I'm, I'm assuming every year in inland Wisconsin waters, you guys net some giants. Yeah. Um, it, you know, they are really a rare beast, right? Some places are more rare than others, but what I would say for Wisconsin, we have, we still have some really, really large fish, you know, Tom Gelb caught two fifty inches in, in his day. Um, rest in peace, Tom, you know, those were in Northwest Wisconsin. Uh, the 50 pounder I was talking about was a 100% stocked fish from our hatchery system in, in Northwest Wisconsin, um, in a lake that has never had any native muskies in it. So, you know, we, we know that they exist. We see big fish every year. Um, there's a couple, you know, it's lake specific and most people, most people know what lakes have the really big fish in them and those tend to not have very many fish. And, you know, that's something that we didn't talk about a lot, but really density dependence is, is a huge thing when it comes to muskies and really big muskies. And I hesitate a little bit to call them genetic giants because like I mentioned before, genetic only plays a small role in, in how these fish get really big when you talk about it scientifically from a fisheries perspective. You know, the, the crazy part to that whole thing there, Jordan, you know, let's say 2006, 2009, somewhere in there, Minnesota was known for their 50 inches, right? I mean, we had some really cool year classes during that time frame that all hit 50 at that magical time. You know, there's like four or five good years there where it was insane. But just the same, it wasn't like you went out and you fished muskies for eight hours and you were putting a 50 in the boat. It, it's still musky fishing. And like you said, I mean, they're, there's very far and few in between, right? I mean, that's a magical creature that you're talking about. Even in the land of 50-inch of fish, like most people like to consider Minnesota at that time frame, I, I'll never forget, you know, I'd be guiding and I, I'd be in the boat and we'd be heading out on the water and the guys would look at me and they'd go, how many, how many do you think we're going to get today? And they were talking fifties. They weren't talking muskies and I'm talking muskies. <laughs> and they're like, how many fifties are we going to get today? So it, it doesn't work that way. You know, the, the, it's a crazy beast that we're fishing after. Absolutely. And there is no doubt, Brad, the, the, you guys have incredible fisheries over there. Um, I would classify them as, as basically low density, big giant fish waters. Most of them. Um, most of your densities over there, I got a buddy who works over there and we talk about population estimates and stuff and, and metrics like that on occasion. And, and mo most of your densities are, are real low or they're real similar to our big fish water too, though. So when we're talking, if you talk densities of fish, you know, our, our lengths aren't quite what yours are. We don't typically get the 56, 57s like you see on Vermillion and some other places. Um, but we can get them 54. 
um, in the state. Uh, most of them t- tend to top out about 52 in Wisconsin, but um, there's no doubt that in that heyday you were talking about that that's when Minnesota almost caught us in Muskie's Inc. Because I actually looked at Minnesota data too. I looked at, uh, it's really cool. I got I'm actually giving the presentation, uh, next week, I think for the Michigan Muskie Alliance talking about fish growth, but it's really interesting to watch what that happened with the Muskie's Inc. registration. Incredible what happened in Minnesota. I won't see it that way again in my lifetime. That's for sure. I mean, there was nights when we caught 10, 12, 16 fish in a night. I mean, it was insane. And, uh, and some of them would be fifties, you know, and it, it was a really cool time frame. That's for sure. A lot of those catches were having to do with you and Carrie with the double cowgirl. So that's, well, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, there was a lot of things that happened during that time frame. I mean, you can't just say it was us, but I, you know, there's no doubt that it was a magical time for the cowgirl. That's for sure. For sure. All right. Well, Jordan, I think that covered a lot of stocking. So if anybody was interested in the nuts and bolts on the stocking and, and everything, I think we covered a lot of it. We covered Green Bay and North and South and everything. I would still love to find somebody that will do this for the Minnesota area. I think that's that would be interesting. Um, maybe somebody can point us in the right direction. Heck, maybe, Jordan, you can point us in the right direction because I think it'd be interesting to go that route because obviously – a bunch of our listeners are from other areas. Even Illinois, it'd be great to have somebody from Illinois as well. But anyways, we just want to thank you again for coming out. I always appreciate it. I know you're doing this. You know, th- th- you got you got nothing to promote. You got no no other reason to do it other than you love musky fishing. And so for that reason, we you know we really do thank you for for coming out a third time. I don't know if it'll it might be a little while before somebody's gonna gonna pass you on that one. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate you guys having me in. And you're right. I, I love muskies. I love muskie fishing. I want to make sure that, that I do the best that I can to make sure muskie fishing is better um, tomorrow than it was today um, in Wisconsin. I got I got a few more years yet to uh, to make that stuff happen. Um, again, I appreciate you having me in. And, yeah, I can shoot me an email, and I'll see if I can find you some names from those other places that you want to talk to. Yeah, that would be great because, like I said, I mean – I hate that we alienate some of our listeners on these episodes from the standpoint that it's mostly, you know, Wisconsin musky fishing talk. But at the same point, I, I think you bring a lot to the table. So, well, I, yeah, I got some names I can give you. That would be great. So I guess that's it, Brad, right? Episode number, I don't know what this one is, in the books. That's pretty much, that's pretty much uh, you know, a wrap, I would say, huh? Yeah, for sure. I'd like to thank Jordan personally, too. Um, it's always good to have them on, and uh, I seem to learn something every time. Well, Jordan, with that being said, I don't know that we're going to have you on for a little while. I'm sure I'll text with you because I'm always asking you questions about this lake or that lake or whatever because I'm trying to, you know, I'm, I'm one of those new musky anglers. I'm trying to, you know, expand my horizons a little bit. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure we'll be in touch. But once again, I you know, I thank you, and we won't be seeing you at any musky shows this year. So I hope that you have a great, a great musky season. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it.